listening to the Reactive Attachments podcast. I started this podcast after years, 16 years, of dealing with reactive attachment disorder and attachment disorders in general and the impacts that that has on families all over. I also support those same families and communities of caregivers that are affected by children with attachment disorders. All of my opinions come from that space. I am not a medical professional. I don't have any licensing for any type of psychological or therapeutic intervention. I cannot create any kind of treatment plan or give medical recommendation or advice. I am not a social service provider either. I am simply a person who has been involved in this community for a long time and I have met the needs of a very specific group of people within this community and even though I may speak in very strong language with very strong opinions, very absolute statements may come from this podcast, please understand that's just how I communicate and if you ever have any issues, any comments, concerns, or questions, please just reach out to me. You can find me on Facebook, on Instagram, just at Reactive Attachments. You can always email me, taylor at reactiveattachments.com, or very simply, just reactiveattachments at gmail.com, and we'll be adding a phone number later on. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Reactive Attachments podcast. I will be talking about a couple of hard topics today. I think I want to get back into the swing of things by first saying thank you to everyone who's really stuck with me through the last X amount of whatever year, I guess, and some change. It's been really difficult, I think, for everyone. I mean, COVID, obviously, but also I think it's just been difficult in the sense of, um, for me, rad inundation and like burnout has really been a struggle for me because it's, you know, not, um, it is not a rare occasion that I sit down to create content of some kind for social media for, to make an episode for the podcast. And I just feel like it's the actual last thing I want to do. I just feel like so sad by all of it and just frustrated. I get gassed up about the, the, people that come into the the spaces that we occupy and tell us that we're doing it wrong. And like, you know, there's so many of us who have been down this road and we just really, really inherently know what our experience has been and what other people's experiences have been. And, you know, for a long time, all the professional resources available to us lied to us. And that is the facts. I don't care how you spin it or what they're doing now with definitions and terminology But for years, up until maybe last year or the year before, RAD was rare, and it was just a super rare thing that very rarely occurred. It's a very rare occurrence. Not not often do we see it. It's very rare. And getting a diagnosis was literally impossible, and understanding what that diagnosis meant is even more difficult. And now all of a sudden we're changing you know, the language, and that's wonderful, and it's very inclusive and very much a little bit, we've, we've, we've scooched over closer to fact, and I'm grateful for that. But for so many years, it was such a struggle to just, you know, have conversations with professionals and to have 
conversations with DHS, to have conversations with biological parents or with our spouse. And like the hell that we experienced was so frequently misunderstood. We were judged and, you know, criticized. We were crucified at times by our own friends and family. So many marriages have been lost and so many people have just been, I mean, not to be dramatic, but destroyed by just the, the misunderstandings, the misrepresentations, our own selfish desire to create families that led us to this path of like something that we just weren't ready for, you know, and there wasn't any resource out there that was solid and affirmative about it and being honest and exposing the truth. There was just... It, I felt really driven to try to expose that there was a space that was safe for families that knew what was up. Like we were no longer waiting around for DHS to like pop up on us and support us and give us the things and the tools and the resources that we need because it wasn't going to happen. I mean, every time DHS showed up, you felt like a piece of shit. And every time DHS showed up, you realized how little they were they were going to help. I mean, there wasn't going to, nobody was going to help you. If anything, they were going to hinder whatever progress you made. That is a long standing experience. And it's hard to just like, I, I felt like I could take a step back and just <clears throat> take a breath because there were, and there are so many like spaces that are available with people telling the truth now and whether services are being rendered with factual, um, educated reactive attachment disorder information. I know, like I said, I know they're changing the verbiage, but for the sake of this podcast, we're just going to call rad what it is and, or what it was. And we're just going to refer to it as rad for now. I mean, there are places now that you can go and you can get the answers and there are groups, support groups. And I mean, it's just everything that you need is available if you can dig around a little bit. And I'm not saying that makes anything any one resource, including my own, less important. I just needed, and I don't even know, maybe I still need space. I have a totally different relationship now with my soon-to-be 17-year-old goddaughter that I raised. Um, we have had the experience of, you know, sending her to her biological dad once he got sober, and he's now remarried, and, like, there's a lot of um, chaos that happens within that dynamic, of course, but I've seen some healing from him and I've always said that I think the only person, the only people that can heal these wounds or even begin to help heal these wounds are the biological parents. And I believe that, I, I guess I, let me back up and say this. I haven't always said that, but since I've come to that realization, I've been very vocal of it. And I just intrinsically know that if there is any healing that can happen, I really do believe that it has to start with biological parents. If the child is has the um, cognitive functions and the ability to process information isn't developmentally um, uh, at a developmental d deficit that that is interfering with comprehension. I really believe that biological relationships with the mother and the father are the only way to begin kind of healing. And, and that is an unfortunate thing for all of us out there doing the caregiver job. But I think that begs the question once again, like, why are you doing this? Why did you take this child on? What were the, the pretenses in which or the motivations in which you stood in that role? Because the truth is we as, as women and as caregivers of all genders, like 
we have to recognize, if not from a parental perspective, but from that of a child who had parents, we have to recognize that like there is always going to be a, a very strong, dynamic, complex connection between a child and the human beings that created them with their own DNA. I've said this in so many episodes and so many pieces of content. You can see my opinion on this for years. But you cannot, you cannot go back to what should have been a secure attachment in, in, in a reactive attachment. And you can't necessarily create, uh, and I don't know all of these to be, I don't know all these, these, these statements to be like fact as far as if you want a resource, if you want me to credit a psychiatrist, like I can't. But what I can tell you is what I've experienced in the last, you know, decade and a half is that biology matters. And if you don't form a secure attachment, you have a reactive attachment. Okay, that's fine. Let me take it down. Sorry, the cat is in the way. So if you have a reactive attachment. Does that mean that you can go back to the biological parents and form a secure attachment? I don't think that's what that means. But I think that you can get much closer to healing some of the reactivity and healing some of the primal wound and get a much um, more well-adjusted child or teenager or adult even than you can without that relationship. And that's just how I've seen it and I'm actively seeing it in my own experience with my own kid and my, and her, you know, her biological family. And, you know, I, I just, I have to ask, like, if you foster to adopt or you foster or you adopted or you were placed in a kinship care role, what were your expectations? Because you have to be the evolved one. You have to be the adult. Like, I know that we all find ourselves looking around the room wondering when the adults are going to show up. But the truth is you have to be the adult. And if you don't have the emotional intelligence to be in these circumstances, you have to be the person that goes out and, and acquires the emotional intelligence. There's just no other way. Like you have to be aware. You have to be always pushing and growing and evolving and doing the work because they're going to want to meet their biological parent. And you can't just put your foot down and stomp around and say no. They're going to, they are going to literally show you the most miserable sides of them. They're going to reject secure attachment behavior. But ultimately, like, they say it takes a village. Yes. And in lots of circumstances, a child will not have their biological parent and they turn out fine. And, and yeah, that's, that's true. But it doesn't ever change that there is a, a wound there and there will be work to be done there. That is, that is period, point blank, end of story. I've never seen a child who um, lacks a secure attachment with the maternal, especially, parent that does not, in fact, um, have quite a bit of trauma that they have to heal regardless. It's just like, do your research. You know, if you are really and truly showing up as a stand-in for someone else's child with the expectation that they will just integrate into your family and become as as close to childlike for you or just like your children are in your home or just like you always dreamed a biological child would be, you have done yourself and that child such a huge disservice. You have to really ask yourself, like, what, what, what were you thinking? 
What were you thinking? How did you think that you were going to be able to recreate a relationship with a child that you make inside of your, a human being made of your own DNA that you created inside of your body that waited nine months to meet you? All the things that I always say, you cannot recreate that bond. I don't care what anyone says. I don't. And I've asked enough parents and I've spoken to people behind closed doors about this topic enough to know that when you think that, that is a sign that your emotional intelligence is maybe a little stunted in the fact that it is not possible. I'm not saying that you cannot love. I do feel like I love my goddaughter like my own child. I've This is the closest experience I've ever had to having a child. I can't compare it to the feeling of being a mother to a biological child because I don't have any of my own children. But I can tell you this. For as much as I love her, everyone that I have sat down and had this conversation heart to heart with, they will tell you it is a different kind of love. It is a different feeling. It's something that you don't even have control over. You don't even have to like the child, but the feeling of connection when you make a child inside of your own body, it is different. And so I'm sorry to say that for whoever that offends, but maybe we need to start having conversations that are just really getting to the facts. So I say all of that to say this, like you need to really have a very deep and meaningful conversation with yourself, in your soul, in your heart, in your mind, your psychological self needs to be very much confronted and say like, when we decide to foster to, to foster these children, what am I expecting? Because it's not a completely selfless act. And, and I've never really seen it, it done in a way that is truly evidently selfless. It's not, it's just not. And it's an act of service. It is an act of love for fostering, especially to me and my experience should only be done if you want to be of service to reunify families, to give families a chance to succeed. If you want children to be placed back in the care of the home they were removed from, if at all possible. And that doesn't mean it's it, there are not circumstances in which children absolutely permanently need removal and those, those families that they came from need to be put under the jail. That is absolutely true. What I'm saying is in most cases, the vast majority of cases, you should be standing on the side of reunification. Your job is to take care of a child who you're hoping without, without any margin for error will be reunified whenever possible, as soon as possible with a healthy parent or healthy parents. That's what you are going to be hoping for as a, as a sound foster family. Um, you should be the person that is, is rooting for growth and maturity and sobriety and whatever else is required of that parent that the child has been removed from the home. You should be the person standing there hoping that they win their child back, that they do the things necessary to get their child, that you should stand on their side. Because if you love children and you love families, you should always want what's best for the child and you are never going to be all of the rare or rare slash extreme cases, not obviously not talking about those cases. I'm talking about the average case of addiction of, um, you know, uh, unkept homes, truancy, things like this, you know, or, or, um, lack of medical care, it, you know, ignorance and, and, um, poorly educated people that are trying to raise families. 
the the standard reason the children are removed. Um, in all of those cases, you should be the person that is literally hoping and, and facilitating reunification. So you should know that the best thing for your child, your foster child, is reunification, is a, a relationship that is active, that is positive, that is successful with their biological parents will always be the best case scenario, period. Just period. And with that being said, it's like, I guess the biggest, I, the takeaway that I would like to everyone to kind of ask themselves and consider after this is over is if you're in that situation, if you're in the situation of, um, you were a foster family and you adopted or you are in a long-term foster situation or, you know, you are in a position that you stepped up for a child and you really wanted to integrate and you've been trying to integrate and you failed at integrating or whatever it may be, like whatever those very specific and individual circumstances may be. I really want you to ask yourself a couple of questions. I want you to ask yourself, you know, what was I realistically expecting from this child, with or without RAD, knowing about RAD, knowing about attachment disorders, all of that aside, what was I expecting my life to look like? And why was I expecting that? Is it something that I was promised and I, I co-signed that against my better judgment? Is it something that I was convinced that I could create a family out of, I, I convinced myself I could create a family with this child um, and it would be full and full of love and it would be easy because I would just do all the right things and you just told yourself like, or maybe someone else told you that if you just love this child, even though they had this trauma in the beginning of their life, even though they've had these experiences or the they've had, you know, these losses or whatever it may be, you just told yourself that you could do all the things needed to heal this child just with love or you know what what were you expecting what were what were your expectations of your ability to parent a child that has trauma what were you expecting your relationship to look like in five years with this child whatever whatever your circumstances are ask yourself that question like was I were my intentions for this situation realistic. And if they were, if you still believe that they were, I would love to hear from you. If you still think that you can heal reactive attachment disorder or, you know, these types of <clears throat> deeply wounded traumatic experiences, if you feel like you can heal these traumas with just by loving a child and showing up every day consistently for that child, that you'll just eventually wear down their um, defenses and their their fight or flight mechanism will just slowly um, disengage and you will integrate this child into the home and the life that you saw for yourself or what was it? You know, I think like so often we are so angry at the biological parents and we say things to ourselves and amongst ourselves and to our children and to, to their children. We say things like, you know, your parents didn't choose you or, you know, if they could just get sober and they could just keep their promise, if they could just, if they could just, if they could just, if they could just. And, and what we're doing is we're using language that tells the child, 
you're not good enough. I'm sorry that your parent doesn't see you as being good enough. I'm sorry that you're not enough to to deserve your your parents sacrifice of for sobriety for you know um oh, staying away from crime staying away from certain men staying away from blank 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 you name it we're telling these children every day while while we're expecting to integrate them into this loving life this family and a lot of us in the circumstances in which they know about their biological parent or they're old enough to communicate about it we're just telling them repeatedly Every time their biological parent doesn't show up in the ways that we expect or the DCF expects, we're telling them, you are not enough for your parent to just make this one simple choice. All they have to do is pass a drug test. All they have to do is stay away from so-and-so. All they have to do is get a job and do this, do whatever it may be. And we, we use this language like it's so easy. And I just think that like over time we tell ourselves that we're doing the things. We're the ones who, who need to be recognized, that we're the ones who've made the sacrifices. And we show up every day. And every day that we show up, it's never enough for you, just like you're never enough for your parent. And, and that may seem extreme. People may listen to this and they may say that I am too soft on biological parents, that I'm too soft on addiction, that I'm too soft on whatever. And it's not that. It's not that I stand on the side of the parent. It's that I stand on the side of the truth. And the truth is children that become teenagers and adolescents and adults, they are always on the inside ready to forgive their parent. And I am not talking about extreme cases, okay? If your father rapes you your entire childhood. I'm not speaking to those children. That is a level of abuse that cannot just be discussed in a simple conversation, okay? I'm talking about the vast majority of cases where children are permanently removed from parents that never had the skill set to even compete for their child. Parents that never had the resources necessary to get sober. They never had a life of sobriety, so therefore they have no coping mechanisms. They have no no foundation of, of goals and milestones and joy outside of their very broken brains. Their neurons are their neuropathways are are damaged. Their reward system is so fucked up that they just do not have the capacity to just simply look at their child they've neglected that's now in the system and look at heroin and be like, I think today is the day. I'm going to choose my child today. Every day they say that. And I know this for a fact because on top of being out here in the rad world, I'm also out here in the homeless community, in the drug addicted population of society that is forgotten and frowned upon. And I'm with them every day. I talk to them. I communicate with them. I show them love when they don't have it. Like I have very deep and meaningful conversations with people that no one else is talking to. And I hear their truth. I see them actively waking up and saying that today's the day they're going to get sober. And I've watched that failure just recycle itself over and over again. And I think that a lot of middle America you know, people that are qualified to be um, foster families are not familiar with the gritty, with the with the griminess, with the realities of homelessness and drug addiction. They're not out there in the real experience with these people. We get Narcan shipped to us, and we take it to the streets, and we see people in our in their cars like knotted off 
they, maybe they're dead, maybe they're asleep. Well, we don't take the time to, to guess and just think about it later. We get out of the car and we rush over to their car and we bang on their window until we can get them to wake up. And if we can't get them to wake up, we will call 911 and, and, and threaten to break the window open and do all the things. Because a life, whether you see the value in someone's parent's life or not, or someone's child's life, if you just look at drug addicts and you think, you know, oh, they're just junkies and they chose this life and this is, you know, this is, they're, they're suffering the consequences of their, of their act, of their own choices and actions. I just don't know how you can sleep at night because for me, like, I know what it's like to, to suffer the loss of a life that was so valuable to me. Friends, you know, um, specifically, I'm not... I'm not in, I don't know if I'm in the headspace to even say their names out loud, but, you know, we lost a very close to us, very important young man, and it was very unexpected, and I, he had not been honest with us about his struggles, and we thought he was sober from one thing, and it turns out he was sober from heroin. We didn't know he was even on heroin. We thought he was, it doesn't even matter, but ultimately he went on this journey to find and reconnect with his biological father and he traveled to his childhood neighborhood and he was looking for, you know, this connection with his, his dad and amongst all of that stress, he relapsed and he overdosed and died. And I had, I used to talk to him three to five times a week. And I hadn't heard from him and I was getting increasingly stressed and just reaching out and trying to find him. And I finally like reached out to a mutual friend and she said that she thought I already knew that he had passed. And I definitely had not been contacted and he, it had been over a week since he passed. He was found um, many hours later in a car in a private business parking garage where he would have never been found, um, 20 hours after the fact, I think it was, I mean, it was literally the saddest of all of the losses, the 30 some odd losses to fentanyl that we've experienced. This one specifically is the hardest one for me because I didn't even know. And he had been sober. He had been fighting for his life and he met a girl and they made a bad choice together. And you know, we don't really know all the details, but he was so young and so beautiful and so he had beat so many odds already. And he was just, he had so many, so much going for him and he had not even begun to live life. And like, if you can walk past that circumstance, that scenario, if you can read about it and you can just, you know, hear me tell you these details and express how beautiful of a human he was, but if your 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 internal mechanism of compassion rejects that and just says, "Well, you know, he shouldn't have gotten high, he shouldn't have relapsed," then you are not in a position to be raising children of trauma of of drug drug addicts. In my opinion, you do not have the space or the capacity to understand and to parent past your opinions because. To feel like an addict is a waste of resource or to feel like a person who has made big mistakes is is no longer worth fighting for, is no longer worth a relationship with their child, is no longer worth 
um, the tears shed over their loss, the loss of their life or the loss of their innocence. Like you don't, in my opinion and in my experience, you don't have enough compassion or empathy to raise their children because they're going to require from you or from someone in their life, whether it's that person or whatever intermediary, whatever bridge is there for them, they are going to require explanations and they're going to want to hear stories that aren't just terrible. They're going to want to be connected to the truth of who their parents were without your bias, period. And like, they deserve to have that. They do. And their parents deserve for them for their child to have that. If they are removed from the situation, they can't provide it themselves, and they maybe lose their life in their journey to sobriety. Maybe they are so removed from their child and the child doesn't want anything to do with them for so long that there's just so many years come between their ability to connect with that child. There's someone along the way is going to have that burden of telling them of, them, of them needing to know about who their parent was their parents were outside of the stories of junkie this and, and drug addict that. They don't need to hear that exclusively forever. That If you think that, that that is serving any justice for a child, then you've got it all wrong. And like you have to be able to do the work. You have to be able to do the work to evolve and to grow into a more mature adult person that can see the need of a human being coming into their own and their, their, the legacy that they are a part of, the lineage that they are, their heritage, their DNA, their genetic contribution to who they are. They're going to want to know these things. And I see it all the time. I see it in adults that have trauma from adoptions, from birth adoptions. I see it in, in children that have had many foster homes and children that have failed to ever be placed in adoption and ended up on the street. I see it all the time. And I hear about it so frequently. And I hear about it in, in cryptic ways. Like the language is disguised because the person speaking about it doesn't even understand for themselves that the child that they're trying to raise and integrate, the child that they are trying to protect and follow the rules so they have a better life and give these opportunities to, they're saying these things, but what it really sounds like to me is I'm doing everything in my power, what I believe to be right for this child by separating it from its story and by healing its wounds with a new life of opportunity that, that often result in resentment and bitterness when the child isn't receptive. And I don't understand why they're rejecting this. How could you reject all of these things when this is what you had before? You had nothing before. I've given you everything. How can you keep rejecting me? Rejecting this. Rejecting the opportunity. How can you keep shitting on your, your chances? Shitting on my sacrifices? And that language to me just says like, you need to have a real serious sit down with self and you need to do some growing because you're not getting it. You're not getting it. And you've made progress if you say like, I know this child has trauma. I know I can never replace this child's parent. I know this child needs these things. And like, my feelings are hurt too. And this sucks for me. And my marriage is falling apart. Like you're allowed to recognize the things that the lack of integrating expectations and reality has had in your, in your own experience. You're allowed to feel those feelings. 
you're allowed to vent and you're allowed to, to like find people that resonate with that story. But what you're not allowed to do is, is blame a child whom you are not doing the due diligence to grow and, and be honest with. You can't blame that child and like be so like, you know, such a, um, you can't be bitter with a child that has an attachment disorder because they're not integrating, because they're not this, because they're not that. If you yourself are not also growing and trying to recognize your expectations and where that landed you. Does that make sense? I hope it makes sense. But I'm trying to cut these at 30 minutes and like I'm already over. So in conclusion, I want to say... I love you all. I thank you so much. I know this is a struggle for most of us, one that we haven't even fully come to realize how difficult it is. We have PTSD ourselves. I know that we're disappointed. I know that we have somehow landed ourselves in this very bizarre world of parenting where like limited amount of people have any understanding of the truth of what we're going through. And I know that sometimes when I come on here and I start rambling on about biological parents and what we have to do and what we have to do for them and what we have to recognize for ourselves and grow and do the work, I know that's not what we always want to hear, but it's what we fucking need to hear. I wish somebody would have given me that lesson long ago because I needed to hear it long ago. You know, next month my kid turns 17. And she's like five still to me and also to the rest of the world. She's not an adult. But like the growth in the last year, she's been with her dad now for almost two years. And we just hit two years, actually. Um, two years, man, the growth just from being with him. And it's really like in this last year and, and like the healing that she has had in that journey, it is impressive. Is she healed? No way. You know, we have to still face down her absent mother who she hasn't seen since she was two and who just had another child that got taken by the state and no one knows where she is. Like, it's a tough hill to climb, mountain to climb. But what I can tell you is like, She's getting really close to being ready to receive the truth of that. And like she's asking questions now. And that shows me that she's becoming more secure with her dad. And like she's now ready to maybe face some of the unknowns with her, her biological mom. And she's just grown in so many ways. And I'm really proud of her. And I love her so much still. And she hates me the least that she's ever hated me because there's another nurturing enemy with the stepmom. So I'm out, I'm out in the clear. She like is on my team now for the first time in her life. Yeah, so like I am impressed and I see changes in her that I didn't think could exist. And I'm trying to get her to come out and visit me for two weeks so I can validate that and make sure it's true instead of just feeling like it's true via phone calls and short visits. And I'll let you know. But at the end of the day, like if you're not growing for you and you're not asking yourself the tough questions and you're not being like measuring your own expectations against your own reality and like calibrating as you go, then you're doing it wrong, period. And I don't need a psychiatrist to tell me that. You guys know where to find me. Reactiveattachments at gmail.com, reactiveattachments on Instagram, on Facebook, and wherever else I am. I hope you guys are okay and you're getting into the summer a little less crazy than last summer. 
everybody in your family is safe and made it through COVID. My heart is with everyone who has experienced loss in this time and regression and chaos. But um, yeah, we're going to get through y'all. We are. And I'm going to try to get my shit together and be here for y'all more. So let's talk about it. If you have any questions or responses, you know where to find me. See you guys next time.